for me. It was a great loss in God's country to our common enemy. <laughs> and if you don't know what I'm talking about, you just go check the old Miss score. It's in times like this that I have to believe that life is bigger than football. That's the only thing that keeps me going. It was really challenging. To make it worse, the Tigers pull off the upset, and I'm just suffering alone. Nobody's there to wallow with me. So it was a rough day for me in every aspect. Praise the Lord for the church, encouraging and not heckling in times of need, right? Because I'm in a great time of need. All right, I just had to get that off my chest. I haven't been able to cry about it yet, so thanks for hearing that. Uh, We're going to be in Acts chapter 18 today. In Acts chapter 18, you get a real snapshot of the early church. So you get this little bitty thing where you get to see how the early church grew. It's pretty interesting to me how the authors in, in the author of Acts, he, he like zooms in on this little bitty piece. And it's like this little picture of how the whole church grew. Uh, somebody likens some of these snapshots in Scripture where you, you just kind of zoom in on one little piece to, to something like a yearbook. And so you, you know, you went to third grade for a whole year, but it's all memorialized in one little yearbook picture. And, um, makes me think about yearbook pictures. I don't know if you guys took, uh, yearbook pictures. Um, I remember getting ready to take them. I remember spending forever doing my hair and getting ready and deciding what I was going to wear and totally kidding. I didn't do any of that. Uh, pretty much yearbook pictures for me was like, I'm playing on the playground. And then somebody says, you want to go get your picture taken? Okay. And then we go get our picture taken. And my yearbook picture is like, you know, I'm the kid who, when you're looking through and you're like, his mom knew, her mom knew, his mom knew, his parents didn't know (laughs) because I, you know, I just like hair everywhere, old clothes. My mom would be so angry every time they came out. Um, I remember there's about three yearbooks, either two or three, where I've got on the same shirt. Like uh, my mom would always buy clothes that were too big so that I could grow into them. And it may surprise you, but I wasn't a fast grower. And so I would wear it in third grade. It would still fit in fourth grade. It was still the nicest shirt that I had. And then when I'd get to sixth grade, uh, my mom, I'd have my brother's shirt that was exactly the same because she would have thought it was real cute to dress us the same. So then I'd have it for like three different yearbook pictures, and people, I'm sure, if anybody ever put the pieces together, probably donated things to us because they thought we were so poor. But I distinctly remember that. Um, In junior high and high school, to me, yearbook photos are commonly known as get a huge zit day, you know, where you get like a huge zit on your nose, and and then some of the guys contemplate using for the first time and trying to just get that thing out of there. Um, Just to prove my point, I pulled up a couple yearbook photos. These aren't mine. I'm going to show you one that I have later, but but these are some famous people's yearbook photos. These are pretty interesting. Here's Justin Bieber, right? I bet you uh, he wouldn't be a, you know, this doesn't personify him today. Uh, There's another one. There you go. Uh, Adam Levine, he looks really angry. You know, like he's, he wants to hurt somebody. This last one's pretty interesting. See if you can guess who that is. Anybody know who that is? That's Ryan Seacrest. Ryan Seacrest, yeah. And sometimes that snapshot of that year is, uh, is very different from what you think it might look like. So that was, that was the most different one that I found. Um, as you see this snapshot in the early church, you think about yourself today. If we take a snapshot of you, at this particular point in time, 
Uh, maybe there's a bio that's, that's included with it. And uh, what would that say for you today? And would you be proud of it? Is it a picture or a bio that you want no one to ever see again? It's really just used as blackmail from your parents for the rest of your life? Or is it some kind of bio that you really would be happy with, that you want people to see? If we took a snapshot and you were just, you know, playing on the playground, so to speak, like you didn't know this was coming and we just got to stop and say, how is your life right now? We, we want to write a snapshot of how you're doing right now. I want you to consider this. This is how God wants your bio to read. Something like this. God accomplished big things through Adam in these ways during this season. And that's what God wants it to read. Maybe he was a giver, you know, and we're talking about, you know, the state missions offering. And let me be clear, for everybody who wasn't here last week, I'm not trying to raise $1.7 million, okay? This is the state missions offering, you know, and we're giving a little bit towards that. But, you know, he was a giver, and he did great things through that. He was a server. Adam shared the gospel, and lives were changed. And that's what he did during this season. And that's the kind of bio that God is, is, is preparing you for. And in Acts chapter 18, we get sort of this little snapshot of the early church. Acts chapter 18, verse 1. Uh, it says, uh, After this, Paul left Athens and he went to Corinth. And there he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome, and Paul went to see them. I want you to check this out real quick. Really significant in who you see first. The first people you see in this snapshot is two refugees that have been forced to leave their home. And I think if there's ever a time to sort of stop doing for others and turn in and do for yourself, it's when you're a refugee fleeing from terrible things. Like if there was ever a time to, to, to turn in and at least take care of yourself, that would be the time. And you've been in those times, you know. You got dumped, you lost a job, financial crisis, I don't know, whatever it is when it's incredibly challenging. And those are the times when you feel like, i got to focus on me right now and, and work on me. But the first people you see in this story are going through something terrible, and, and God takes this dead end and turns it into this incredible new beginning. Because they decide during this time to not turn inward, but to turn outward and to take Paul in and to serve in the church. And then go on to verse 3. And because he was a tent maker, this was Paul's livelihood, he was a tent maker. We think he may have been leather worker, so he may have actually been making tents. He may have been doing some work with leather. But this was Paul's day job. Because he was a tent maker, Paul was, just as they were. He stayed and worked with them. And then every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. Like, this is the life of a church he worked 8 to 5, uh, and then he preached on the weekends. It's nothing, nothing glamorous. This is much how my life is, right? This is the life of a church planner. Then verse 5. And then later, Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, and Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest, and he said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go... From now on, I'll go to the Gentiles. Verse 7. Then Paul left the synagogue, and he went next door to the house of... Um, I tried to figure out how to pronounce this. I don't know how. Um, I think it's Tatias. Tatias Justice. Um, people say it differently. Anyway, uh, he's a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. 
And so you get this real snapshot of the early church, exactly how much of the early church grew in every single city. And in this yearbook, so to speak, you get four characters introduced here. And, and a couple of them come, and, and their role in the whole thing is, you know, when, when two of them came, who was it, when Silas and Timothy came, their role was to start doing some work so that Paul could get out and preach every day. And so they're doing some of the hands-on work that Paul was doing, so he can get out and do that. And that's their part of the bio here. Paul had a, a bio written here. It would say, Paul began to preach to Jews and Gentiles, and he baptized believers. And that's what he's doing in this time. And you got all these people doing things. You, you, got, you got Crispus, who he's risking a high-profile, lucrative job. That's what he's doing in this season. He's got a great job, and he's risking all of it so that so that he can be a part of what God's doing in the city. you got this guy named Justice who's risking, risking his own life because people are, are, are angry mobs are following Paul everywhere that he goes. And, and everywhere he goes, danger comes. And Justice allows him to come and to stay in his house. And so, man, you got people doing significant things. Like if you paused at this point in time and you wrote about what they're doing, you'd see some great stuff. And then finally in verse 9, it says, One night... The Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. He says, Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one is going to attack you and harm you, because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. Did you catch that? I think that's pretty interesting. Here's what you see about Paul. Paul is scared. People are attacking him, right? He's needing only the kind of encouragement that God can give. He's, he's fearful. And he's just like us. He's a regular guy. He's working a, a day job. He's trying to serve God during his free hours, and he's preaching on the weekends. And, and he's a little bit worried and a little bit scared about how much following Jesus may cost him. He's worried about what people are going to think about him. He's worried about how it looks. I mean, have you ever been there? You know, you, you, you think that, that following Jesus is, is, you know, if you get too radical, then that's going to be weird. Or if you get too serious about it, then people are really going to judge all the bad things that you do. Like Paul has some real fear, just like we have some real fear. And when it comes to faith, what you begin to see is there are no extraordinary people in this story. It's just regular people God uses to do some extraordinary things. And you got blue-collar people and white-collar people and, and, you know, Cajun collar, is that a thing? Redneck collar, you know, all the different kind of people that you can be. And all these people, neighbors, preachers, interns, people who have stable jobs, people whose lives have been flipped upside down, and people from all different kinds of places God is using to tell the story. And what kind of things is God doing there and here? The kind of things that God's using these people to do is He's restoring families, Right, he's, he's all, whole families are coming to faith in Christ, feeding the hungry, serving others, exercising patience, exercising justice, so on and so forth, and so many things. Those are the kind of things that God's doing. But it's all towards the goal of making disciples, introducing people to Jesus so that they might follow him. And that's the big picture. If we're talking big picture. That's the big thing that God is seeking to do in the lives of people, is introducing people to him, doing good for others so that people might come to faith in Christ. I remember um, one of the pictures, I told you I was going to share a picture of me that was in a yearbook. Um, this is one. I was in the ninth grade. Um, we were taking uh, pictures for, there it is, right? We were taking pictures. These were baseball pictures. Um, 
and it was a bunch of freshmen, and the photographer clearly didn't have kids because they decided that we could pose however we wanted. And so, um, so we decided, what you can't see, I got my mom to send this to me. This is like in a little frame. But what you can't see is out to the side, there's a bat, you know, and so I'm like holding the bat. And we decided that we were going to kind of unbutton our shirts and put on gold necklaces and, uh, and use the bat kind of like a pimp cane, and that's, that's how we were going to pose for our pictures. And so that's how we all took our pictures, and my mom was incredibly proud to get this and to see it in the yearbook. This is what, and of course, my brother's picture, you should he's like smiling with his glove on his knee. You know, he did it all perfectly. Um, this is one of those times when I firmly believe that we could have used someone, anyone, older and wiser to say, you probably should not do this. Your parents will hate this. You will get into trouble. The photographer could have used a more seasoned, could have had someone there to say, I want you to know that this will end disastrously. But yet here we were, a whole bunch of freshmen, and that's how all of our pictures came out that year. There are three things in this passage that I want you to know. If you're going to do great things for God, if, you're, if your life is going to be characterized, if part of your bio is going to be that you accomplish great things for God, there's one thing that's, that you have to start with, and that is surrounding yourself with people who provide wisdom, surrounding yourself with people who love the Lord, surrounding yourself with people who give you some of that good advice. And if you're going to do these things, if you're going to live out the life that God has planned for you to live, that's the first thing you got to know, is that you need people around you who are absolutely going to serve one another, absolutely going to spur you on. But here's the thing, before you even get to that, here's what I want you to know. The people that God is using, the people that God's surrounding you with, they're everyday normal people. And that's what I think is so significant. And sometimes we think if God is going to do something incredible through someone, he's going to choose someone who, is, who has some incredible ability to speak, who has some incredible ability to sing. And those are the kind of people that God does great things through. But you see, it's just the opposite as you go through this passage. Aquila and Priscilla, they're on the run. They lost everything that they have. They're tent makers. Nothing special. Silas and Timothy, they're super young guys, and they're interns, probably in their teens at this point in their life. you got a guy named Justice. He just happened to own a home that was next to the synagogue. Nothing special about him. He was just neighbors to the church. That was it. you got another guy, Crispus. He is an important guy. He's a leader in the synagogue. He's an important Jew in the city, but he's the only one who's important. Paul himself, he goes to work every day, and then he preaches on the weekends. Of all seven of these people, one of them gets paid to do ministry. But God is using all of them to do incredible things. And that's what I think is so significant is sometimes, and even much of my life, long before I was the pastor, when I was the youth pastor, when I was just a member in the church, there was, there was an idea to me that there was a role for me to fill in the church, but the big stuff was for the pastor. And he was the one that was really going to affect the change and all that kind of thing. But when you begin to look through Scripture, it looks nothing like that. And the idea is the people that God uses are just everyday, normal folks. And he pulls them out of whatever they're doing, and he calls them to do something incredible. God uses everyday people, and those people have to be surrounded by other people that are going to spur them on to do good things, that are going to spur them on to, to, to some of this goodness. God uses everyday people, and these everyday people need each other. 
Silas and Timothy showed up, and what did they do for Paul? All they did, here's what they did for Paul. They showed up, and they started making the tents that Paul was making so that he could go out and and preach every day. That's all that they did. They didn't show up and start teaching. They didn't get a whole lot of glory. They just showed up and went to work. Justice just happened to have a house that Paul could use to preach from. And so he didn't do anything except for keep the house clean and keep the door open. And so God didn't call him to do something so outside of the, so far outside of what he could accomplish. He just took what he had and he began to serve with it. Later, Paul says of Timothy, when you know, Timothy was one of the two that came, he says, Timothy, I long to see you so that I can be filled with joy. And I think a lot of Timothy's role was just to encourage Paul. Paul was literally scared to death. He was going to flee the city. He was scared that people were after him, so much so that God had to appear to him in a dream and and tell him, no, I want you to stay. And Timothy's huge role there is just to be an encourager. You and I, if we're going to do some of these great things, and, and they may not seem so great in the moment, but God is using them to do great things. If we're going to do that, we've got to surround ourselves with people like that. My college BSU director, his name is Mo Baker, Mo uh, gave me the opportunity. At the time, I was like a you know sophomore, freshman, sophomore in college. I was majoring in one of many things. I landed eventually on a major, um, but you know, but not theology. They don't do that at at, at Ole Miss. And so um, you know, I'm just a, a student, like any other student with a major. But he just decides to begin to invest in me. I meet with him every week or week and a half, and he's, uh, and he's praying over me. He's sending me out to, you know, these churches would call and say, hey, do you have a student who can come preach? And he would send me to go preach, and God helped those poor churches. I mean, I know it was probably terrible, um, but I was, I was preaching out there. I remember we went to one church, Sunshine Baptist Church. Do you remember that? Sunshine Baptist? Anyway, uh, we went out there, and I was supposed to preach for a half hour. I preached for about nine, ten minutes. And I remember a guy was asleep on the front row. This guy actually ended up being a professor of mine. Um, but anyway, he was asleep on the front row. And I remember when I was done, and I remember him waking up going, like, so shocked that his nap was so short. Um, but, I, you know, and, and Mo just put me in front of those people. And I would go, and I would preach somewhere. And then I would get back, and he would say, how'd it go? And I'm like, it was a train wreck. And, um, and we would begin to walk through how to do that better. And uh, one time he had to go pretty far on the trip, and he said, um, hey, if you want to ride with me, you know, uh, we, you, can, you can ride with me. I'll pay for you to stay in the hotel. And so I just went with him, and we just spent the whole time in the, in the truck. And that's when, I, that's when I learned about seminary. I, didn't, I was so green. I didn't know what seminary was or what theology education was very much. And he shared with me a whole lot about what that looked like. And um, the trip was as boring as ever. I, you know, we just went, and he preached, and then we came right back. Um, but I, but I learned a heck of a lot just because he decided to take the time to, to just invest in somebody. Didn't know what I would do. Certainly didn't know that I would be a a missionary. Certainly didn't know that I would be preaching. Definitely didn't know all that stuff, but he just decided to make the investment. And almost unintentionally, I surrounded myself with people who were encouraging me to do the things that God had already planned for me to do. And that's the idea is that we're surrounding ourselves with people who are spurring us on to do great things. Because what, what do we do when, 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 when we're struggling and bad things are happening? And sometimes we want to surround ourselves with people who will agree with us and encourage us to do what we've already, the bad thing we've already decided to do. You know? Who will gossip with us? Who will, who will be in the slums with us? Rather than somebody who will pick us up and push us to do the things that, that are good and right. 
So I ask you this question. I don't know what it is, but what has God called you to do? There is absolutely something that he is pulling you towards. For a while, I was doing middle and high school ministry. That was, you know, like three or four years. I'll tell you the number one key to middle school ministry, deodorant. It's the number one key to middle middle school ministry. Those kids are very stinky, and they're very hard to deal with. Um, But beyond deodorant, the key to middle school ministry is absolutely the wisdom of God. When you think about as a parent, even if it's your second or third kid, and you have a middle schooler, and you go, I do not know what to do with this kid. And then you put a 20-year-old who has no kids and very little wisdom and say, here, you take them. <laughs> I mean, I had no idea what to do. I mean, nobody does in that, in that situation and in that position. And here I am with these middle school kids, and I'm like, what the heck do I do with these kids? And if you listen, God may be calling you to something that you never, ever expected. Lead something, serve in some way, give something. And it may be something you have no idea how to do. But here's the, the great, the last great truth from this passage. And it is that God will absolutely sustain His people. And when He calls you to do something, and you step out and say yes, He doesn't just leave you to trip and fall or you know, leave you to just to, to, to fail at it. When Paul was at wit's end and he was like, I'm going to go. You know, if you've ever said, the only thing that would keep me here is if God showed up and said right to my face, you got to stay here and keep doing this. And I think that's where Paul was. And so what did God do? Appeared to Paul in a dream and told him, hey, you need to stay. Here's what, here's what God says to Paul. He gives him two promises in this dream. He gives him a promise of presence and a promise of security. The presence is he shows up to Paul and he says, don't be afraid, Paul, I'm with you. I'm with you. Sometimes that's just what you need to know. And I talked to a church planner this past week. He's in Luling. They had about 25 folks coming to the church. And um, they've been working hard and working hard, you know, and met some families. And within a period of a month, um, one guy went to jail. Um, Two families moved, just normal attrition. They moved outside of Luling. And they went from 25 to 10 in a month. And they had been just working all this time, and he'd say, man, God is really doing good things, and here we are, and we're growing, and now all of a sudden, it's... And, and by the way, they went from 25 to 10. He's got seven people in his family. <laughs> so, I, I mean, you know, it, like the whole dynamics of the whole thing changed. And I think that's a time when he needed to say, God, are you in this at all? And, and that's one of the promises that God makes to Paul, that he makes to us, is when I call you to some, do something, I am with you. And he gives him some security too. He says, and here's the truth. No one will harm you. And, and sometimes it's physical harm. It was for Paul. Sometimes it's, it's emotional, you know, social, emotional, spiritual harm. But he says, look, no one will harm you. Not in a way that's lasting. Not in a way that's permanent. No one will harm you. So let me, let me finish with this. You may say, all that sounds a little bit romanticized. Just the whole idea that God is calling me to something big, but there may be trouble. Sounds like a made-for-TV movie, you know. I don't, I don't exactly, you know, that just seems like normal life and you're just trying to make it God-like. But let me speak from some personal experience. If you have trouble finding joy where you are now, like, like you, you feel like consistently, you know, maybe there's got to be more than this. You know, this life has become very mundane or you're just lacking some sense of joy, I'll say this, you'll find it when you say yes. 
I've had easier jobs. I've had everything in life has been easier than it, had, than it is now at different times. I mean, it, but absolutely, when I began to say yes to what God wanted to do, man, just that lack of joy and that wondering about purpose, absolutely gone. And if you miss some of that, when you say yes to what God wants you to do, when you lean in to what he wants to accomplish through you, you know that little thing that every now and then when you're in Bible study and, and, and you know, or you're here and, and that idea just pulls at you just while you're here? That's usually the thing. And when you say yes to it, man, you find that joy. And when you do, here's what I'll guarantee you. When you say yes, and you begin to lean in to what God wants to do in you and through you, you better believe that the devil takes notice. Again, sounds like made-for-TV stuff. Here we are warning you about the devil. But just give it a shot and see. And I guarantee you that as you lean into that, you'll think, oh, I, I, I'm doing what God wants me to do. Shouldn't things be easier? No, it always gets harder. And you'll think of walking away from what God's caused you to do because it actually made life more challenging rather than less challenging. And in that time, His promise to you is that I am with you. You're doing what I called you to do, and so I'm with you. And no one will harm you. What is God calling you? Every day, Jane, every day, Joe, whatever, you know, every day, ordinary people, what is God calling you to do? Four years ago, almost exactly, he called me along with a few others to plant this church. And I got to tell you, I was so, I, I went through four years of a master's degree and I was so dissatisfied with church. And I was like, I was supposed to be more excited, not less excited. And when I said yes, and it was a whole lot more work, man, absolutely just found some immediate joy. And today God's calling me even more so very clearly as I begin to search and say, God, this is challenging. You know, what do you want me to do? I, man, he's telling me to lean into it. Remove the distractions that, Adam, you've sort of built up and, and, give, and give the church the time that it needs. And I see very clearly him calling me to do that. And he is very clearly just as much calling you to do something. And you may have it in your mind as to what it is. And you may say, I, you know, I I've keep saying, I don't know how I'll do that. I'll do it in the next season of life. There's another time when I will begin to lean into that. And, and I would say, man, now is the time. And when God's called you to do it, now is the place and now is the time. Consider, what has God called you to do? Let me pray.